0: Today's episode of The Wire, Way Down in the Hole, on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute, individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and L.A., and they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics on the front lines while keeping local, Restaurants in business as well. Fantastic. You can directly help these
1: heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us. And you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to TheRinger.com backslash WCK to donate please we're trying to raise $250,000 and if you have the means it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes emergency workers and local restaurants please give whatever you can the money goes directly to the World Central Kitchen and it's a charitable donation once again that's theringer.com backslash WCK
2: thing is you only got to fuck up once little slow be a little late just once and how you ain't gonna never be slow never be late you can't plan for no shit like this man it's life
1: you now the, the question I never asked you man is did you own a pager
0: yes you did own a pager. I did. I did own a pager. I got the I got my uh, I got my pager, me. Shout out to Ryan Davenport, my best friend. We got our pagers uh in '97. Wow. It was, like, it was like 97. You, you I had I feel
1: like that was a little on the later side. Am I tripping?
0: Yeah, but I was only like 17. Like, so like it was it was a big deal. It was like 97 going into uh graduated in 98, so it was like senior year. And like we would page each other, and like just put "ho," three hundred four, you know I mean? <laughs> three hundred four, and just put "ho" and stuff like that, and page and call back. So yeah, well I got a pager ninety seven.
1: Oh, such inno- innocent times, right? Where three hundred four, mm-hmm. everybody knew <laughs> what that mm-hmm. meant. I had a pager in high school too. I got my first one. My I feel like it was my junior year, and it was would have been the the awesome year of nineteen ninety two because I'm mm-hmm. old as fuck, and so mm-hmm. I got it when. Uh, I think the Sir mix the song. I don't even know if it was out yet. Sky Pager. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So, give me some general observations that you had about the Pager episode.
0: They're digging deeper into the bar sales, and you start to see—you're starting to see that it's starting to get to them. Uh, the bar organization is showing, you know, a, a, a little bit of uh, there's some cracks there. Now we've seen some structural cracks in the organization before this, but now we're seeing some mental cracks. You see, it starts off with Avon being super paranoid. He's looking out of his window. He's going all right. He's full. My mind's playing tricks on me. Ghetto boys, early 90s, paranoid, right? Uh, He tells Weeba to rip the phone out of Lyra's Cross. Shout out to Lyra's Cross. um, Actress in the one scene right there. Lyra's Cross is a a, a big-time model now. Big-time model then, but shout out to her. Uh, He's going to take her phone out of her apartment because... He's paranoid. She don't get to have no phone because he's paranoid.
1: Right. And I'm guessing he ain't even there all the time, right? Yeah, she just gotta all the time. be phoneless.
0: <laughs> right. What, she got smoke signals, or what's going on? Um, and it is it is even to the point to where we one of his lieutenants, admonishes him for this. Like, dog. And we is is paranoid than a motherfucker. Right already. But, and for him to be like, yo, we need to chill. Yeah, we going way, I feel like we're going way past careful, is what he tells him. Uh, this is also the episode where D'Angelo goes into the city on his date and feels completely out of place. So, that you know, that's that's my favorite scene from this whole episode. That's your favorite
1: scene from that's this episode? That's my favorite scene is, from, is, is that. So we can dive deeper into that later.
0: I think this episode has the most powerful file this away for later in the history of The Wire. Ooh, please tell. There's a scene in this episode where Wallace is playing with an action figure, some kind of crazy little action figure. I don't know. Maybe it looks like Goro or somebody like that. And Bodhi sees that. And then Bodhi takes a 40-ounce bottle, throws it, and it breaks over Wallace's head and it cuts Wallace.
2: Easy to see why niggas come around here stealing our shit.
0: You know what? You know what, nigga? That, to me, you have to file that away for later. Because that's telling you that even though Wallace and Bodie are friends, that's his boy. They in the same crew. If Bodie sees Wallace fucking up, he is willing to react violently against his friend. Wallace is very childlike. He's still trying to find a lot of things uh, in his life, he's trying to make sense of a lot of this stuff. Bodie is out of here. Bodie is uh, is absolutely hardened. He already views himself to be a man in this game, to be a man on these streets, and he is not going to abide by any childlike, petty, any little bullshit. And whatever has to happen to anyone around him to 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 get the next fucking thing off is gonna happen. We know what's eventually going to happen to Wallace, and in that scene right there, when you see his homeboy throw that and hit him, and you see Wallace bleeding, I'm like, "There it is, there it is, right there." And That's one of the most powerful scenes in The Wire. Um, later on, and this kind of and that scene in the pit foreshadows uh, what's going to happen.
1: Well, and to tie it to another thing that we learn about Bodie is when he has been brought in. By Herc and Carver. They finally catch up to him. By the way, that's my We Love This Show Butt moment. Okay, they, you know, on the streets, they're not exactly dealing with some high, highly intelligent criminals, all right? Some of the youngins, all right? Like these dudes, they pretty much do what they do. You ain't dealing with people who have aliases and different IDs and shit like that. (laughs) What? They ran up in in the low risers. Like they didn't know he was fucking there. Like he's been there the whole time. That's what, of course he was going back to there. And right. in the previous episode when they ran up at Bodie, Bodie's grandmother's house, it was like, um, wouldn't you just go back to the I don't know the same fucking neighborhood he always is in? So it's like, His wait, spot. what? Like yeah. they, I guess, to give the illusion like they couldn't find Bodie, as
0: right. if
1: Bodie has somewhere else to go.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, I, I get it. <laughs> I don't know what the what the time span was, but even for Bodie. Bodhi escaped from prison, basically. It, like, he he is, he, that's my, uh, we love this show, but Bodhi escaped from prison and went right back to where everybody knows he was going to be. For, for, for Let's not even talk about the escape from jail. There's what it is, some TV shit. But he escaped and went right back. If If he knew that the cops were looking at him because he walked out of a juvenile facility, Escaped, he escaped to jail. Then why would you go right back to where they was gonna come get you? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's my yeah. we love this show, but moment.
1: When you were talking about how Bodie gets on Wallace for playing with this toy, uh, because at that point when he he gets on him, it's not like business isn't being conducted. He, he may be, it's one of those things where the per- perception is reality, and Bodie's mm-hmm. upset because the perception, given that they just got robbed, is you got people who's supposed to be working sitting there playing with toys and. That's why he says that's why everybody thinks we soft is because they right. see shit like that. So he's trying to kind of keep, um, you know, kind of shit in check. But it, it's a it, it's an interesting moment because unfortunately it opens up a much bigger Pandora's doors box, which I feel like young black men in particular um, just another thing that they're burdened with is that they never get to be children. And it was very interesting mm. to me how, when Bodie was getting interrogated by Herc and Carver, because I think you have a tendency to forget this because of the subject matter with the show, and um, just as you get to know these characters, you forget Bodie is 16.
2: You're racking up all kinds of points, aren't you? First, you put a cop in the hospital, damn near kill his ass with that punch. Now you on the wing from Boys Village? Man, I'm 16, all right? What the fuck they gonna do to me? That's the least of your worries, my friend. God damn, yeah. Right, I mean, we knew he was
1: young just by the fact that he was in juvenile because if he was over 18 or whatever, he'd yeah, be sure. in, a, in an adult facility. So we knew he what he was, but him saying, yo, I'm just 16, that says, that to me just kind of brought it back full circle to that moment with Wallace because Wallace... Despite, as you pointed out, despite the fact that he's in these streets living on his own and in that game is something still innocent about him. His all of his his childlike innocence has not been completely taken from him. It's been gone a long time ago with Bodie. Been gone a perfectly, long time.
0: Yeah. Perfectly casted character. Wallace. Yes. And shout exactly. out to Michael B. Jordan. Perfectly casted. Uh, y'all all know that Michael B. Jordan got pecs and shoulders now. Got that little V thing. It's different now. None of that was around then. He looks like the walking embodiment of youth. He's got a soft face. He's got like like his his mannerisms are even delicate. He's a skinny kid. He looks like a kid. He looks like that. So you buy everything that happens with Wallace's character in terms of um, the sort of uh, childlike way He views the world It's all written Right there on his face Bodhi totally opposite
1: I feel like that That was your Undercover Kind of shade way Of saying like Y'all know Michael B. Jordan Wasn't always fine <laughs> like,
0: I feel like no. That's what you hey, Really trying to
1: say You like look, uh, I remember Straight backs Michael B. Jordan
0: With the little Skinny olive oil arms <laughs> Hey I'm gonna be real with you The last person In the world I would hate on Proud of the boy for years, he's been a legend out here in these LA streets. And I was just joking. I was just joking. I get nobody in trouble. No, 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 no. But um, you see Michael B. Jordan, and this is kind of a, a tan a, a tangential point, but not so much. You see the man that he's become, right? You see the fact that he's put into his body. He's like a he's a dude now in his early thirties, and then you kind of look at who Wallace was, right? And you know that kids like Wallace never grow to be guys like that because the hood and the system eats them up and spits them out. Now, what Bodie was doing for Wallace, it seemed harsh, right? And it was harsh. But also, in a lot of ways, guys like Bodie treat kids like that in that way because they think they're saving their lives. If, it's like, if you're going to be here in this game with us, let me tell you what you can't be. And you can't be playing with the toys. You can't be either. You got to be all the way fucking in or all the way fucking out. So it's a harsh reality. But the but the sad part is it is a reality. Uh, and I think, you know, you kind of see that play out, you know, in the rest of the season. But in Wallace's characters, Wallace was innocence kind of being snuffed out.
1: Yeah. And I don't think he was. I think he was doing it in part because. He felt like they just needed to tighten up as a crew, so it right. was a little bit of ego involved because mm-hmm. he's like, "Yo, we can't, we we as a unit can't be out here looking like this." The other right. part was, I I agree with you. I think he was trying to also give him a little bit of of tough love, like it came from a place of like, "I'm trying to save your damn life," because one of right. these heads see you playing with this toy, they gonna take you for a sucker, and then we gonna right. have even bigger problems. Or the people that robbed us before they may actually come back because they feel like we can be had all the time. So it was kind of um, a dual lesson going on and an interesting role for Bodhi to be in in general because he ain't the kind of dude, even though he's wise in his own way, but he ain't the kind of dude to be imparting wisdom to folks. Like, that Not ain't really. really
0: his role, you know? But it, and it was another thing that showed the uh, dichotomy between Bodie and D'Angelo. The, Wallace's innocence is precisely what D'Angelo like, loved about him. As always
1: with The Wire, I think uh, sometimes the, the smaller moments and the smaller scenes can say things in such a loud way. Uh, and when Bubbles and Kima, one of my favorite kind of undercover, deep, deep undercover scenes, I guess, in this episode, is when Bubbles and Kima are together in her car, I believe. And uh, Bubbles says to her, uh, how y'all do what y'all do every day and not get high. Ah. <laughs> like, like he's been rolling with him for a minute, you know, like yeah. him, Kima and McNulty form their own little triumvirate, if you will. Mm-hmm. And he's been able to get an insight in a, in a, a lane into their world that he wouldn't otherwise has. And I think he, and we saw a little bit of this in the previous episode. while as you mentioned, when he's taking that ride with McNulty in the last episode, and they're going to to see his kids play soccer, he's just like, holy shit, like how much, like they can, they can jump out of the hood and those issues at any time they feel like it. The police could do that. Mm -hmm. They were like, all right, I'm on these streets for five hours. Then I'm gonna go home to a nice cooked meal, family and soccer games. And how those worlds couldn't be any more alike or any more different rather. And yet (laughs) at the same time, um, you know, Bubs understands that they their world that they live in professionally and sometimes personally is just as fucked up as his is. And yeah. it may not be for the same reason, but the mm-hmm. same root dysfunction like exists. So when he said that to Kima, um, I thought that was, you know, kind of, you know, really interesting moment um for him right there. And because we know at this point that Stringer really doesn't like he doesn't respect D'Angelo it, like it right. has nothing to do with it. he don't mm-hmm. respect this dude at all so he's telling him how he needs to kind of you know not just address the possible snitch in his crew but just basically to tighten up and how immediately upon Stringer's sort of you know chastising it reminded me of kind of like when you know middle management or upper management gets on your head for some shit you really ain't trying to hear but you're mm-hmm. forced to react based off their sensibilities
2: Friday. What happened on Friday? Payday. Not this Friday. Why not? No, no. What you gonna do? You gonna call him like you gonna pay him? And then you crack him. You tell him you're not happy with what they fucking passers work down here. And when you not happy, they ain't getting paid. You feel me? Yeah, If a streamer man, you don't pay a nigga, he ain't gonna work for you. But you think a nigga's gonna <laughs> get a job?
1: <laughs> and he immediately goes and slaps the phone out of Poot's hand. As yeah. Poot as he often does throughout this series always trying to organize some some extracurricular activity And he always just trying to
0: just say it poot <laughs> is always trying to get some ass he is poot, always trying to get some ass like poot is-, <laughs> poot is basically the mcnulty of the hood poot is Yo, always that's yeah, a good one <laughs> yeah poot is always trying to get some ass shout out to poot man poot um that probably kept poot out of more trouble like, right, like, You're right You know what I mean Like Pooh always trying to get some ass So yeah So he goes gets the phone But once again That And your Continuing narrative Against one Mr. Russell Stringer Bell That is a good moment for Stringer When he's telling him And in the end
2: You want to get respect Yeah And then when that money went out I come up to you and roll on you and ask you for, for an advance and shit. When they flat ass broke, them the niggas that you strike off your list. But that nigga that stay eating, nigga that steady rolling, ain't asking you for shit. That's the nigga I want to hear about.
0: That was good advice. Are you going to go into this with your bias? Huh? With your I- bias? The bias that you displayed last episode in terms of sex in the city and Samantha, are you going to go into this with your bias or can you admit when Stringer has a good moment?
1: Look now, uh, as what was it? What's the often phrase is like a, a dead clock can be right twice a day or whatever it is. <laughs> but however, I mean, the player wasn't foolproof. That's not act like this was, that's not act like this is George Clooney plotting a rob andy garcia's casino all right let's let's not do that okay and only (laughs) reason i say that is look there's parts of the crew that know d'angelo is only about that life so much he wound up not paying somebody somebody really might get his ass and be like yo i ain't here for this working for free shit it might have it could have gone the other way easily Mm. it was a decent plan because it worked but Let's not put more sauce it did, on it. It, did work,
0: it, did. It, did, it didn't work to get the snitch because there wasn't a snitch. It turns out that the cops had uh, were surveilling surveillance. So therefore, you just
1: pointed out the, the no, ultimate doing no,
0: no, this. No. It, it, no, it worked in order because it turned out that somebody, that he found out somebody in the crew was stealing. So, But that's later on. But it was good Stringer realized that with all of the evidence that the cops had, he actually said this prior to this episode, that something had to be off in the pit. And I was. But I just want you to make sure you give Stringer his credit. Mm-hmm. Give Stringer his credit when he does something wrong. <laughs> you hate him. You hate the character.
1: Well, uh, the characters, but that's a testament to Idris Elba. It's like, I think you're supposed to feel this way about Stringer. It's hard not to question his motives because right. he is also somebody who, you know, like McNulty, like other characters on this show thinks that he is the smartest person in the room. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: One of the bigger developments is the police. They finally get the proper affidavit to get approval to clone a pager, but they spend a lot of time in this episode trying to figure out the code of the Barksdale organization. And that's when a surprising force rises Mm -hmm. from the ashes like Mm -hmm. a phoenix. Your man.
0: Prez Beluski Roland fucking Prez Beluski That's right, put some respect The Albert on his name. Einstein of <laughs> West Baltimore
1: That's right You know, I mean, he was making copies and answering phones, they was treating him like the fucking administrative assistant up in there mm-hmm. and finally in this episode Prez has his moment
2: All you gotta do is jump the 5 button <laughs> Ain't no math to it, it's just how the phone looks when you look at it Press, you little genius. Genius. (laughs) Another
1: big part uh, of this um, particular episode is Wallace points out Omar's lover, Brandon, and Mm. a whole bunch of shit happens as a result um, that winds up not only impacting Brandon, but also Wallace. And again, it's one of those things that you will increasingly find in this series is retaliation... Often moves made, and this wasn't necessarily a move made in haste, but a lot of the times when people are intent on revenge, it winds up backfiring on them and kind of unintended consequences, as this does uh, here when Wallace spots uh, Omar's lover in a in an arcade, uh, which winds up getting him to major props within the Barksdale organization. But that also comes uh, with his claws, and we also kind of see Avon in a introspective moments in this particular episode as he goes to visit a relative, um, you know, who is not really lucid and kind of speaks to his own mortality, if you will. And you kind of see kinda a little bit of a different side to Avon. Like, we've seen him as being this... We see a couple of different sides to him in this episode. Like, him being super paranoid. This is the paranoid. most Avon
0: that we've gotten thus far.
1: Yes, it's the most Avon that we've gotten so, so thus far. Like, he's super paranoid. But then you know, there's a part of him that you appreciate. Like, he's he's smart in a way that's different than how Stringer is smart. Like, he's smart about these games, and smart about these streets, and he he understands the consequences. That doesn't mean he's any better at navigating them or dodging them, but there's a lot about this that he understands, and I think that some people, when they watch this series... They always they have a tendency, which is why I do the fuck boy alert every episode. They have a tendency to put Stringer in that power position of intelligence, like Avon is just some Rube just mindlessly following him along. And it's he has a lot of moments where I think you can hint at or you get to see that kind of introspection. And this was one on one. So anyway, that's like the bare bones of what happens.
0: The difference what you're talking about is between intellect and wisdom. Mm. Avon is, Avon is- is, You said what I wanted
1: to say, only smarter.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Avon is wise. He looks at people and he looks through them and he, and like, he understands. But remember, it's like a Bane situation. He was born into the darkness. You know what I mean? He's wise. He looks at at all of these situations and he can kind of see through the levels of them um, and he also knows people a lot better than Stringer does. And in that scene that you're talking about, which we we're going to talk a lot about in, in, when he's in the hospital and he's talking with him and, um, and D'Angelo's uncle, he's expressing to D'Angelo how the wisdom of the uncle both worked or it didn't work and how he's having trouble making sense of that. So like, He's a very relatable human character. It's like it reminds me kind of in a way growing up I'd have all, I'd read all of these books and I'd look at all of this these things about society and I'd try to analyze and break things down and I would go to my dad for an answer and right away he come with something that was just simple to the point but devastatingly uh, accurate. He's a wise man and that's kind of the difference between Avon and Stringer.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more Way Down in the Hole.
0: Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network that we are launching this week. It's called TV Concierge. It's only available on Spotify. These are 12 to 15 minute mini podcasts that review the latest TV shows streaming on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, HBO, Showtime, FX, Apple TV, wherever else. We'll preview new shows that are launching. We'll break down the biggest shows that just launched. We'll review the biggest binge watch seasons that drop as they happen. It's our new TV concierge podcast from the Ringer Podcast Network. Think of it like a little bit of a playlist. Pick and choose the ones you want to
1: listen to. It's available only on Spotify. All right. So our deep dive for this particular episode is my man, Lester Freeman. Mm. (laughs) I love his name. I love his name. Lester Freeman. It sounded like an upstanding black.
0: <laughs> yeah, Lester Freeman.
1: Lester Freeman, it he like, could be a it like he on the. Uh, I was about to say, it sounded like he on
0: the deacon board.
1: Yeah, he sounded like he on the deacon board. Lester Freeman.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Deacon Lester sure was preaching today, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? But Lester is, uh, we found out a little bit in the last episode, um, well, actually a lot about how he even came to this unit to begin with and just the path, the path that he's taken.
2: How long have you been in the pawn shop unit? Thirteen years and four months. Thirteen years? And four months. i got to ask you. What exactly does a police officer assigned to the pawn shop unit do? You intake reports from registered pawn shops on all items valued over $50. Then you make an index card for that item. Then you file that index card. If someone wants to find out if something stolen has been pawned, we look to see if we have an index card. If we do, we do. If we don't, we don't. You did that for 13 years? And four months. Why'd you ask out of homicide? Well, no ask about it. You got the boot? Uh Uh-huh. What'd you do to piss him off? Police work.
1: He had to toil away in in the pawn shop because, like McNulty, he decided to fight City Hall, and City Hall won, and his punishment was going to a place that he did not want to go. And his time and detail on or his time in this particular detail has given him entirely new life where um I think he was content to kind of paint his uh little caricatures or paint his little figurines whatever you
0: want to call house miniatures Respect, my bag
1: I'm sorry I didn't respect it you right um let me put some respect on, on Lester Freeman's craftsmanship if you will but yeah, you know, I, I think he, until this happens, I mean, he clearly he was okay with just being somebody who would collect a check, wait till he could retire, retire comfortably, and then go about his life. He, they had with, not literally, but just kind of emotionally and psychologically, they had beaten, they had beaten the fucks out of Lester.
0: He had Oh, books. it was done. Oh, it was done. You're yeah. right. You, you couldn't be right. He, Lester Freeman, before major crimes came along. He had, we was completely resigned to his fate. That's where he was. He had, he understood that he had sacrificed something, uh, in, 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 uh, for his uh, ideals. And that's what happens when you sacrifice something for your ideals, but he had resigned himself to it. You couldn't be right.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was, he was really out of fucks and I think what drew him in and what made him come alive is that he saw McNulty's commitment, you know, cause he would be over there, uh, painting his and he would actually overhear some real police work. And I think it intrigued him and, um, you know, made him want to be involved. But just as a, as a character, um, you know, it, he? what I love is that he has this interesting dynamic with McNulty is that for as much as they're on the same page, they're like not on the same page, you know? Mm-hmm. And so those two have, I wouldn't necessarily call it a rivalry because I think there is respect there, but I think there's a little bit, they both have a tendency to get very high on their soap boxes and drive the other one kind of crazy. And
2: mm.
1: also, you know, the dynamic that he has with Kima because I think that Kima looks up to Lester Freeman a lot. I mean, he is kind of, you know, that's why everybody else is good police but Lester noticed they call him Natural Police.
2: Bunk Moreland says you're Natural Police, one of the few. Yeah, I've had my moments.
1: That's a different label. That's mm-hmm. you know everybody else might be you know lieutenants and he the general. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Is yeah. that he was somebody literally born to do exactly this? And while you know, I mean, to some on some level, he's like the brains of the show because behind the wires and figuring out stuff. And he's willing to do the very tough parts of detective work, the looking at records, the tedious shit that a lot of people don't want to do. He has a certain, not just commitment for, but passion to do those things Mm -hmm. that he is probably throughout the show, probably him and Kima are like the two best examples of like kind of what you wish
0: real police officers were like. Mm. Don't no shit on Bunk, but yeah, you're oh, right bunk. for the most that, part. That's a good third one. Yeah, yeah, I, would,
1: yeah, I yeah. would completely agree with Bunk.
0: I, I, I got something for you. See if you can fuck with me on this. Uh-oh. Lester Freeman is the Kawhi Leonard of The Wire, and McNulty is LeBron. Now, I'll say this. The, the, this is why I said... Th- mm, th- okay, th- let, let, let I'm me, digesting. Let, I'm digesting. Let me Let me unpack it, you know. I'm not saying that LeBron has any of the... He's a family man, so get off me. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying, when LeBron does things uh, on the basketball court and in life, he does them for the right reasons, right? But they're in big, grandiose ways. LeBron James is a star. When he walks into the room, it's all about LeBron James. I'm not saying necessarily that he's a narcissist, but I'm saying that LeBron James has been the topic of conversation since he was in the eighth grade. And so it's hard for him to go into a room and not be the topic of conversation. It's kind of like McNulty. McNulty has made himself the topic of the conversation wherever he goes. So it's difficult for him to go into a place and not be the topic of conversation. Even still, he is highly effective. He's still a champion. Lester, completely different. Lester's the kind of guy that watches... Two groups of police officers struggle to push a fucking desk, right? Well, they don't even realize that they're pushing against each other, and he doesn't even say anything. He just observes, and he learns, and then when it's time to be effective, he uses what he's learned to go and get it, kind of like Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard was a good NBA player when he first came into the league, right? But it took him some time he understood the league, understood where he was going to fit, how he was going to be effective, and then in a very understated way, one day my brother hits me up and goes, "Think about it. Is Kawhi Leonard the best player in the NBA?" And I'm like, "No. Wait. Maybe." Like and and this is this is during the Spurs days when it was he was the best two-way player in the league. McNulty if he's getting it done, you're going to know about it. He's going to tell you. Everyone's going to be up in arms. They're going to be throwing his basketball card around. We know to, we know to, we know to. But Lester Freeman is quiet. He's an assassin. Like detective man gets paid. All he does is basically just uh, give great closures and give unbelievable casework. Doesn't make a big deal about it. Doesn't make a big show about it. Um and does it in a workmanlike way, grinds it out, goes to, the, goes to the scene, pulls things from it, but is involved, right? Don't need to be out with you hanging out, getting drunk. He might go every now and again. Don't need to do all of that. Just goes and gets the job done. Lester is Kawhi Leonard. McNulty is LeBron. That's no disrespect to LeBron. We know he's a great family man. Love the I to school. But <laughs> you always got to say that. Yeah. You always gotta, you always in case gotta, somebody you,
1: wants to do a really direct comparison, it's like, no, he's not saying he's a man whore. I'm okay? not saying he's I'm not saying
0: he's going to, he's a drunk that likes it. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying he does his thing in a much more big way.
1: <laughs> now, that is interesting. And you saying that comparison, I'm like, well, shit, who's James Harden then? Anyway.
0: <laughs> ooh. Ooh. I was like, who's, who's the, the James, James Harden? James
1: Harden of the wire. I,
0: I know who it is. Uh-oh. It's Stringer.
1: You know what? You know what? You know what?
0: It's Stringer.
1: All right, it's so here's stringer. why I buy that comparison. And uh-huh. look, I've I've said this before, so we go. I'm not shy about saying it. I think James Harden is an incredible player. I hate watching James Harden play. I, I, there, mm-hmm. I said it. I, I hate watching him play. Because his style is methodical. Mm-hmm. And, well, he certainly has moments of, of where you're like, oh, uh, and, you know, I mean, he busts people's ass. I, I get it. I don't really nah, he enjoy. he don't bust
0: people's ass. He busts everybody's ass. Oh, yeah. He'd he be busts every- I mean, he's
1: a prolific scorer. Like, he's yeah. very good. So this is not a knock against his ability. But as a fan, I love watching him. It's like, yeah, hey, he's good. It's great, you know. <laughs> right. I don't love watching him necessarily. <laughs> Yeah. And, but he's always. Even though for as much as he does, I feel like sometimes he thinks he's a little bit better than he actually
0: is, which is what James him is Yes, okay, I get you. It's hard yeah. to be better than like thirty six points, but yeah, but like, but, no, <laughs> but I get but what he, you're saying though.
1: But he's in a certain category. Player, it's very, it's very different. It's very odd because you know, okay, most people say, all right, best player. If you want to say LeBron, okay. Some people will say hard And I'm not saying That anybody will But I think Maybe it's part of the era That he's in Because he's sandwiched Between LeBron And you got Giannis And these other players That he is somebody Who Despite What his numbers show Which are absurd They're gross They're crazy They're an analytics dream Looking at some of the numbers That he has mm-hmm. I still don't believe He be- des- uh, belongs In a certain class of player I just mm-hmm. don't and that's how you I look think, at him as far as sugars. I, I don't think he. I don't think he belongs in LeBron or. Um, well, Giannis is hard because he's such a physical freak. I don't think he belongs in Kawhi's cat. I don't think he belongs in that group. I just don't. Yeah.
0: Those guys All are right? champions, and I think, and I think, I think that's kind of. But it's with not Stringer. the rings,
1: though. It's not the because I'm not, the not the like rings. a r- rings or else kind of person, right? Because I don't know if I would put him on Giannis's level. I really don't, and right. maybe it's because he has. One thing he does really, really well, and I'm not sitting up here trying to be the defensive police, even though we have seen James Harden. That ain't exactly his strong suit yeah. <laughs> per se, but it's not even about that. It's just that I sometimes look at the rub off effect and the, how your game rubs off on others. And it's like there's a mm. missing rub off effect sometimes with him.
0: All of these things come back to Russell Stringer Bell. How yeah. you? Rub, That's like why how probably you rub, I don't fuck with Stringer. But anyway, <laughs> like, how, like, like how, how, like uh, how your game rubs off with other Stringer, man. So Stringer is an ISO player. Stringer is the definition of an ISO player. He feels like if he can just get his buckets, if things can just go the way they're supposed to go, from the way he sees it, it's gonna be better for the whole team. Like if 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 things just go the way they're supposed to go for him. It's going to be better for the whole team. And if you're going to be an ISO player in the dope game, if it's going to be all about how you see things, if you're not going to think about how your decisions affect other people, if you're going to think about how, if you're not going to think about any of that stuff, you got to be Kobe. You got to be Jordan. You got it. it, That's you got to If you're anything other than that, you're going to get your teammates killed. And that's kind of the whole thing with Stringer. So, um, so, 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 yeah, yeah so i I think that would that would have to that would have to have to be him well you know what we'll 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 continue we'll do we'll do nBA comparisons this that's fun I know right? yeah we could
1: we could do one with I mean granted it's, it's like fifty eleven 11 members of this cast so right <laughs> but we could probably with the core group we could mm-hmm. probably get a pretty good um comparison game going real interesting is you you know what all right I'm just I'm gonna say this you said McNulty right. was LeBron right okay all right. In some ways, you could okay. also say McNulty is Westbrook. Ooh. Unpacked. Yes, and you, the reason I would say Westbrook is, see, McNulty got one level all the way the fuck in. He's emotional and volatile, and, but volatile in the ways that it works for him. It feeds his game. Like, McNulty has a certain anger that feeds his game. Like, when mm-hmm. Russ is out there and he's at his best, the edge, the anger, all that come through. Like, that's how he knows how to play. He can only play fast as hell, a thousand percent. That's it. He knows no other direction. McNulty only knows how to work by blowing up, blowing shit the fuck all the way up. That's the only way he knows yeah. how to work. He's got to yeah. torpedo every situation. Like, he doesn't know subtlety. He doesn't know, like, oh, okay, maybe I'll just try to, um, you know, that whole, it's better to, uh, you know, you can get more flies with with honey than anything else, right? Like, McNulty doesn't know that. Like that? Mm-hmm. That's not his game. Yeah. Right. And he's an aggressive player and there are nights where and much like in these these episodes in terms of the, the 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 cases that he solves. You know who you know who broke it down? Yo, in the last episode, Lansman broke it down. He broke it down to Rawls. When he was telling that whole story about old girl or the top falling, he was the masturbation story, the uncomfortable masturbation story that he told Rawls. L- Lansman creeps me the fuck out.
0: Lansman oh, creeps. He's, a, he's one of the creep. Jay Lansman is one of the creepiest fucking characters in the history of television, but you were saying.
1: Yes, and based off an of actual person. Now, the actual person isn't creepy, but he is actually based off an actual person. Uh, I, who, real name, too. There is a real Jay Lansman. Oh, wow. So Lansman is telling Rawls uh, about how, you know, he's trying to have his moment of glory with his fist. And then McNulty's mind po- McNulty pops into his mind. And then he just talks about the fact that, like, yeah, he basically is like, yeah, this motherfucker is irritating. Yeah, he's this. Yeah, he's that. But I tell you what, last year cleared eight murders. Tell you what, the results is there. And so it's kind of like the same thing with Russell Westbrook is that there are probably going to be nights where Russ is going to shoot them out the game. It's it's just going to happen. It happened more, I think, when he was with OKC because so much of the team, offense, everything ran through him. I mean, it's a little different in his new situation. There was also going to be plenty of nights where this dude was going to do something you have never seen before. And you be like, yeah. damn, even though he might give me a headache over here, ain't nobody like him. Yeah. Can't fuck with him when he at his best. Yeah. Can't do it.
0: So that's why I play. would say
1: McNulty is kind of more of a Westbrook type of
0: dude mm. to me than a LeBron kind of okay. dude. Right, well, okay. I know? agree that's to what? disagree. No, we can't agree on. No, we can't agree on the fact that like I literally have to watch Russell Westbrook play with Xanax. Like I just it gives me anxiety. I love watching him play. He's one of my favorite players ever to watch play. But he's so angry, like that. Like he's so angry. I'm like, yo, man. Sometimes you know people like people shot at Russ. I'm like, y'all sure y'all want to really shot at Russ? Like he wouldn't be the dude. I'd be talking like I I just think I just think you know I'm I'm not saying he like a like he you know like a, a Kendrick Perkins. Matt Barnes type, but I'm saying he he really mad. Like russ was out there seriously angry. Shout out to Russ, man. A million miles an hour.
1: <laughs> yeah, all the time. Um so with Lester, I mean that was who we were uh you know deep diving into before we got into these NBA comparison, which the Kawhi one, I think is is very appropriate. Um there's a lot of people who look at the wire and for as much as this series is kind of built around the whims and the decisions of McNulty they look at Freeman, Lester Freeman as the real MVP of the squad.
0: He's the best you know? detective. And
1: yeah, he, they look at him as definitely the best detective. And I do think, um, tail of the tape, you know, comparing one to the other, I'm not saying this about the, the two NBA examples necessarily, but, um, it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, I'm not going to pick a tie or anything like that. It's, it's kind of tough, but I'll say this is that to a man, Lester is a better de- detective than McNulty. He is. He's a, because, McNulty is is smart and he can figure shit out and he can figure motivate m- figure out people's motivations like he's really good especially obviously on a crime scene like he does his thing interrogation great in- interrogation I mean we've seen how he can um manipulate somebody in those but because Lester is always playing the long game that to me makes him better and he's always he 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 will make no secret of this as we progress forward is He's all about following the money. When you follow the money, that has way more implications. It has way more, uh, gives you way more of a blueprint to how this system works than just following criminals and following drug lords and following who's at the top of certain organizations. You start following where that money is going, you're in a whole different situation. And so I think, yes, that's why I would say comparing the two, Lester Freeman by far is the best detective on this show.
0: So here's the thing, That's that's I don't feel like that's arguable. Lester is the best detective on the show. When, you, when you're sort of comparing him to McNulty, remember, Lester is just a detective. So Lester needed McNulty to activate him. Like McNulty brings, that's why I call him like a, like a, a bigger impact player. He brings the whole structure with him. Like, major crimes happen because of McNulty. McNulty is so disruptive and so magnetic that he changed the show and brought the unit that activated him.
1: You're right. I mean, he does change systems. And that's, he that's does change what, systems. That is, that is what LeBron does. I right. Mean, if you go with that comparison, it's like he changes. Shit, he changes everybody's free agent plan. He changes, like, everything he everything. does. He change, yeah, he changes everybody.
0: Takes Daniels and Mason into Rich Paul. Daniels was like a little. Daniels was a lieutenant that was doing this thing after he's dealing with McNulty for a little while. Now he's putting guys in place to win and fighting against the NCAA. No, I'm just joking. But, like, uh, but, but, you, you know what I mean? So, when you look at Lester Freeman, part of the reason why Lester Freeman is so good is what he is and why I say he's the is it's just basketball with Lester. It's just basketball. Lester does his thing. It's all about the work. It's all about like getting it and closing it down. And, and also skill wise, he's just a well-rounded player, man. He's doing all, he's following the money, but he's going to the crime. scene. he's just Lester Freeman. Also, he more than anybody in the show represents, like you said, the, the, the purity of policing Lester just wants to make a case like uh, beyond that he wants to make a case and make his little dollhouse mansions. Lester just wants to make a case all the other big grandiose points he doesn't really have those points to make the points that he has to make is when the bracelet goes on the bad guy
1: alright let's talk about our favorite scenes of the
0: episode okay the Bodhi interrogation scene first I go in play nice then you come in play bad I ain't gonna be playing. And when Carver tries to break Bodie, Bodie's too seasoned.
2: What you want? I want for you to suck my dick. You're supposed to be the good cop, you dumb motherfucker. What? What?
0: what? Oh, DeAngelo actually was somewhat broken by the cops, and Bodie significantly younger, who didn't even have the luxury uh, of having Levy to come down. He's not even important enough for Levy to come down and help him out. That shows you the difference between those two guys and probably the reason that they can't get along. Um, So my three scenes, I would say the Bodie interrogation scene, D'Angelo in the city um, on the date, but the scene of the entire episode to me is between two scenes. Number one, Bubbles and Johnny in the rehabilitation center that Johnny's in.
2: Where you been at? Yeah, in there. I'm at it. i gonna mean, come past sooner, but I've been uh, on kind of like a mission. A mission? Yeah, yeah. Them hoppers that beat you down, they got problems now. Yeah, there are many people that slink for, even. What? I put the police on their ass. <laughs> police? Yeah. Would you get locked up or something? Oh, no, come on. No, I'm not working for them. I'm working with them. <laughs> they don't give me the bad soon enough, I keep doing like I do. Why? why. How you gonna ask me why?
0: And it's a dead heat, but it's just it's just one centella not as good as a little bit slow, a little bit late, um, And that is D'Angelo Barksdale uh, in a different sort of rehabilitation center or a hospital um, with Avon Barksdale. They're both looking at their uncle.
2: So you ain't big on coming here, right? Nah. Uh-huh.
0: Tell you something, man. You're about
2: to see your uncle. You understand me? This family. I don't know. Family is what counts. Family is what it's about. Family gonna always be there because it's blood.
0: That to me is one of the most powerful scenes in, in the show's history. And it's amazing that we say this about, we say there's there's a scene like that in almost every episode, but that's the beauty of the wire. In almost every episode, there's our signature episode to the series, and that's one to me, because more than any other time in the show you get a sense of Avon's worldview of how Avon looks at things and Avon's dedication to family like D'Angelo is too afraid to go in there he's scared to look at a guy The guy does care he doesn't want to be in there Avon tells D'Angelo I'm scared too you know uh, you're right it's kind of hard to be
2: in here right now he scare you, don't he? You know what I'm just saying. He scares me.
0: You have to be there for family. Family is the only thing that matters. We're right here. This is the reality of it. And it also shows something else. Avon Barksdale is accepting of his fate. He's accepting of what could and most likely will happen to him. See, if he did, you know, I
2: could carry it better. Coming up to what we did, you know, you kind of expect that. You're waiting on it. See, the thing is, you only got to fuck up once. Be a little slow, be a little late, just once. And how you ain't gonna never be slow, never be late? You can't plan for no shit like this, man. It's life.
0: Yeah, it scares me. And that, to me, speaks to the realities of these things. It's not like these kids that are out here on corners and these guys, it's not like they don't know how that story ends. It's not, they, the, the majority of them know exactly how that story ends. So that's why all of that scared straight shit is bullshit. Like the majority of the story, the majority of the kids know exactly how it is. They're playing the cards that were dealt to them and Avon basically says that when he's in the hospital uh, with D'Angelo.
1: So, uh, Van, you already hit on on my favorite scene, which is when D'Angelo takes Donette out for dinner at a nice place in Baltimore.
2: Hello, may I help you? Yeah, like a table. Yeah, do you have reservations? Nah, uh, I thought, you know, we could just walk in and see what it can. Don't follow me, please. Uh, can we get that one over there? Uh, it's Friday night. Those are for patrons who made reservations.
1: And this is what people have to understand and and why I think the scene, scene is so powerful. When you're in a city like that and you're staying in a world they're, they're in, going to a nice dinner in, say, downtown Baltimore, another part of Baltimore, seems like going to the fucking moon. Yeah. Like, that is not... Like, they, that is not a part of their world at all. And even though you're dealing with... Like, D'Angelo's not hurting for money. Right? Mm-hmm. People Avon is in a street you know, none of them none of the upper level dealers in the the Barksdale organization are hating are are hurting for money, but yet they've confined and constricted their world to just a couple neighborhoods. Where mm-hmm. to them that shit that happens in the touristy parts of town or in the gentrified parts of town or other, you know, higher level places, that shit don't even exist to them. Right. And that is why, uh, and combined for for as much as they know about the street, they don't know shit about the other parts of the world. They don't know shit beyond the street. So it never occurs to D'Angelo that when you go to a nice restaurant, you actually have to make a reservation, or you should make one if you want a good table. He has no idea, and so immediately, as soon as the um, uh, the mater, uh, as soon as the host puts him on blast about that he's already feeling uncomfortable he's feeling uncomfortable yeah. because they're there and then he immediately becomes more uncomfortable because he realizes this ain't this is nothing like the world i'm accustomed to where i'm used to being able to run shit a certain way where my name means something and i come into this restaurant and they're like here take this kind of shitty table because you don't know what you're doing and it kind of is what it is but it was a, a few moments that they had in the course of their conversation as they're with dinner that lets you know that even though he knows what the game is, D'Angelo's bothered by the fact that he is just kind of viewed as like a grimy ass drug dealer. He's ashamed it of it. bothers him. Yeah. Yes. Yep. He's ashamed of it. He knows mm-hmm. what he does is paying the bills and all these other things. But at the end of the day, he's just kind of like people see what I do. And it reminds me of that conversation that he had with, um, with the youngins when they were going off on the fiends that were coming around, to, to cop some dope, and they were just treating him like shit. And they're just like, Man, they fiends. You're supposed to treat him like whatever. And he's like, What the fuck are you? You're a drug dealer. Right. So he's aware of the perception of who he is and what he's doing. And a lot of guys in that game have a, they practice and live in a cognitive dissonance. That's why it's kind of call it a little bit like the Nino Brown syndrome, where Nino Brown is just this awful person in some respects, entertaining, but awful. But then on Thanksgiving, he like, let me hand out some turkeys. It's like, right. Ah, what? right? right. <laughs> you know? Cause he's like, he doesn't associate himself with being a murderous asshole. right? right. And so, yeah. and, but the is aware, like th- there's no separation of church and state with him. He's like, damn, what I do is fucked up. And it makes me feel fucked up because I know people are looking at me or I fear they're looking at me. Like I'm a fucked up person because of what I do for a living.
0: Right. He really cares. And because he really cares, he's wearing his shame like on a on his chest. He feels a certain way about himself and he thinks everybody else can see it, too. Um, And she's trying to tell him, like, all they see here is your money. You got money. You can be whatever you want to be. He's like, nah, man, like I'm into some shit like that. Like, you know, like I'm into some shit. You couldn't be writer about him.
1: Well, but here's the thing though, even with that, that exposes that, you know, I, I remember uh, that uh, when when Stringer Bell was first peeping Donette at the community center and Avon asked him, yo, how's the family doing and, or how's she doing or whatever? And he's like, man, she want me to move in. And he wasn't, clearly he wasn't feeling it, right? Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why I think he's not feeling it because he knows she has no conscience about the shit that he's doing. Right. See the perception of other people doesn't matter as much to her because she doesn't have as big of a problem with what he's doing as he does. Mm -hmm. And so they're already on sort of different, you know, uh, philosophical pages and watching that scene, I guess relating it to my own life, it kind of made me think about kind of the first time or first few times that I realized the world that I came with came from rather was, really peanut size compared to the world that was out there. And I don't know if you had that moment where you realized like, damn, okay, I, I'm thinking, you know, life begins and ends on you know, 12 blocks in Detroit when it's like so much bigger than that. I remember when I got to college and I had sweetmates mates uh, in college. So in, all that means is uh, we share a bathroom. Like you're connected to another, the room that's next to you, you guys are connected by a bathroom and that, that's what you share. And I remember my sweetmates. mates, we were just talking, and they mentioned something about shaving their legs. Two white girls, um, just so people further explain the story. Now, obviously, I grew up primarily among, you know, black women, older black women at that auntie's mama, grandmother. Black women I grew up around with did not believe in shaving their legs. They they literally, my mother, I know, barely, mm. I, your expression. Mm. It's like, look, maybe it's my country backwards as family. I do not know this, but... But, yes.
0: Finish I sp- this story.
1: A, I've been, yeah. I spent many a Sundays in church looking at all the black women in church who had on white pantyhose and they had Sasquatch-like hair growing. I was about <laughs> to say,
0: you ever see that movie Harry and the Hendersons? Yes. Like, with, like about John Lithgow and they up there and he's looking for the Sasquatch and the rest of yeah. the family. So, you come from, basically, Sasquatchville, Michigan, is Correct. what you're saying. Sasquatchville, <laughs> Michigan.
1: But my mother, hold up, but... But dead serious though, my mother, um, she—I remember her saying, at some point when I was growing up, black women don't shave their legs. She
0: said that and believed it. What kind of shit? Like all, 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 all like all due respect to your beautiful, uh, amazing mother. We gotta stop with this black people don't s- stuff because, but like, that's like, what I mean. Right. So, oh, so what? But, but but look, you know what? This is important though, because so what you're saying is, is D'Angelo's world was based upon uh, the drug game. Your world was Sasquatch land. And you, when you when you got to Michigan State, that's the first time you ever saw a Lady Bic.
1: I mean, I I knew that you used a razor to shave your underarms. I mean, I'm not a complete heathen. Like I knew that part, right? Mm-hmm. But the leg part. No, and then there's other parts I had to find out. I was like, "Oh, you that's oh,
0: that." Oh, that I, I, whoa, whoa! How many razors did you go through? How many razors did you destroy on your legs before you got it right? You probably doled well, out a bunch of them.
1: I, I know, I probably did. Like, because then you had to learn, like, no, you're not supposed to use the same razor on your legs for four weeks in a row. Like, that's Damn, it...
0: This is great. I can't believe it. this is the. This is some of the best. Like, I'm learning so much more about you. But you know what? Also. I got to be real with you. This is a true thing. And when you're talking about culture and cultural diffusion and things of that nature, when I first got out to L.A., I was mentoring kids in the valley who had never been to the beach before. And you're thinking like, like, yo, like we don't go to Hollywood. Like, I'm like, you don't go to Hollywood. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, you live like you you, you live in Pacoima or uh, Van Nuys, or you live in, like, you don't go. Like, nah. I go. Like, they, they, they were telling me, they were like, 12, 13-year-old kids, like, they had never been out to Santa Monica. And I'm like, wow. So, yeah, it, it definitely matters. And different people find those things out different ways. And I'm sure everybody um, who's from areas like that has a story about how they figured out how big the world was.
1: Yeah. I mean, like there are people um, in Detroit that in it, it's this way now because downtown has become so gentrified. They've never been downtown or they like so rarely go that it doesn't even connect to them, that that's actually a part of their city. And so in in that scene, it just registers on so many different levels with me because it just reminds me of all the things I did not know when I got to Michigan State, because Detroit is like 90 percent black. And so finally, when I go to Michigan State, I'm uh, I, I'm exposed to other cultures and the races. And, you know, with like my where my sweetmates were from, maybe 20 minutes from Detroit had never been there. I was like, wow. oh, Sterling Heights. I was like, I just remember that Sterling Heights, where they grew up, we used to call it Sterling Whites, which was. Ah! Best- <laughs> <laughs> Sterling Whites. But it, it's amazing how you're living in these cities and there's just it, you become conditioned to places you're not supposed to go And that you don't belong because the camera pans as D'Angelo's in this restaurant. And you could tell with the way they shot this, they wanted you to feel his discomfort. Yeah. Of being in this place, even though, as Donette pointed out, there were other black people in there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't
1: like they're the only ones.
0: You know what else she did in that scene? She drove him into the arms of Chardine. See, see? She drove him into the Perfect arms of Chardine. because Because he is trying to connect with her on a human level about things that he sees and doesn't feel right about. A little while after that, he goes into Orlando's and he sees Chardine do something human. He can't connect with his girl, right, on a human level. She's talking about money and talking about all of that stuff that don't have a heartbeat and a pulse. He goes into Orlando's. There is a uh an argument between a patron uh and somebody at the bar. The patron is saying that Shardine stole money. She didn't really steal it. Uh there's some kind of dis uh like uh, d- disagreement. Misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. Thank you. And um and the guy gets up to walk away and then Char- to get kicked out the club, and Chardine gives him the money. And then when D'Angelo peeps that, he goes, Yo, would you take his money? She goes, No. Why you did that, boom, he sees somebody else who feels when something is wrong and wants to kind of do something about it. He saw a human being acting human and above all other things, that's what attracted him to her because remember before he had kind of wasn't really get fucking with her like that, but yeah, he kind of backed off a little bit backed off from her, but that's kind of what he sees an actual real person. And D'Angelo, man, he wants a human contact. He wants something other than that fucking game. And he sees that in her. And uh, as long as they had that together, it's when that trust gets broken that things go uh, go go left in him.
1: Yeah, no, that's a, a tremendous op- observation because ultimately it was her humanity that drew him in. And I think he needed somebody human, but he needed somebody in that world that was human like he didn't want right. to feel alone in the sense like am i the only one who's in this fucked up shit that mm. doesn't feel like us that feels like it's fucked up and is it just me because it felt like for him i'm sure that everybody around him was just okay with things being fucked up yeah and yeah. it felt good for him to connect with somebody who didn't i want to get to a little bit of a trivia here bec- before we get to who won the episode so your fun fact that you can repeat at parties. Well, maybe not repeat at parties because <laughs> I don't know if this is necessarily the type of thing you want to be talking about. So Michael K. Williams, who, as everyone knows, is playing Omar. He uh, admitted that he was battling a cocaine addiction during the wire. Wow. Did you notice?
0: Know I had no I idea. I did not know that at all.
1: Yes. He never missed a day of work, though. Was never late. But during the course of The Wire, I think he said it, it really got bad, like his third season. Yeah, he was struggling with cocaine and he also was having like a bit of an identity crisis and severe anxiety because of the popularity of this character. And I meant to say that because we did the deep dive on Omar, the last one, but I it totally slipped my mind. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna save this for that one. Um, And another uh, little interesting note- is so you brought up the scene where uh, Herc and everybody they're struggling with this desk in the in the unit, right? So they don't realize that they were pushing in the it it finally dawns on them that they were pushing in the wrong direction. The reason that scene got put in there is because david simon wanted it wanted to use that as a metaphor to how catastrophic the police department was. So he thought that scene would perfectly mm-hmm. embody the fact that you got some motherfuckers pushing some of them don't know what direction they going they're in there some of them pulling so i was like oh that's kind of brilliant but yo that michael k williams thing i was like wait what (laughs)
0: that's very weird well not weird first of all shout out to michael k williams yeah a fantastic actor it's not weird it's just a weird life imitates art but then not even really but kind of a weird type of deal when um when you look at it that way, but you never know what people go through to create this art, man. That's why when you get this art, this art from these artists, you really have to respect them and and sort of uh, digest the art in a proper and respectful way because it it doesn't seem like it. But, you know, for somebody to give you Omar and give you all of that stuff to know that they're sacrificing personally, man. Uh, it 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 happens more often than than you would think that it does. So yeah, I'm glad that brother's doing well now, and he's he's had several great roles. Uh, I could do a deep dive into Chalky White. He's had several great roles. Um, um, after this, and he's still doing this thing. So shout out to him.
1: Yeah, and um, he's he discusses this in in Jonathan Abrams' book. Um, not the not necessarily um, not talking about the cocaine use, but in all the pieces matter. Uh, One of the things he talks about in great detail is is Brandon's death. And that's when it was a hard moment for him, not because the character was dying, um, but it was a hard moment seeing how everybody reacted to it Mm. and everybody as in the public. Because he I guess he saw some YouTube comments and he said it was just really very Uh, difficult for him to read over and over that there was a lot of people who were celebrating the fact that he had been murdered because and of course they were using his sexuality you Mm -hmm. know to kind of gaslight the moment and pointing to that and saying how they were glad because he was gay that he was dead and they weren't being that polite about it when they said it and what what really struck him is that they would say that and in the same breath say oh but i love omar like they couldn't even see
0: Right, They couldn't
1: even see his humanity, despite the fact like they're both gay. So it's just right. like you rooting right. for him to be dead because he's gay is like rooting for your alleged favorite character to be dead as well. Mm. And that really messed him up, seeing all the negative responses. And just in general, at the time, because, again, this is 2002. And for as a, as far more advanced we were when it came to LGBTQ issues then, or just LB, uh, or just recognizing the humanity and the presence and respecting the presence and representation of people from those marginalized groups, we weren't that far along in O2. No.
0: Like we were uh, further I along, mean, but not. It that was far. better, but it was, it was I mean, It was still wilding. I mean that had that hadn't been too much time after Matthew Shepard, so right. there was there there was still gay marriage wasn't legal. Right. So yeah, it was still a lot of wilding going on. Let's be real. Like, like a lot of this, these things that we're talking about that we think have always been this way. We talk about the last seven, eight years for a lot of these things, man. So like, yeah, yeah 2002, it was still, the people were still out there doing that. Still kind of roughing the streets. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. not to yeah. Say, And that's not to say that it isn't now, but right. um, the, the progress has been made now certainly hadn't been made at that point.
1: Which, in a way, I mean, honestly makes the fact that they made the decision to make his character gay even that much more groundbreaking because in O two, there was literally no pressure to do it. There was no right. reason to do it. They could have very well um, for either his character or, or Kima's. They could they could have had no gay people in the wire whatsoever. Right. And nobody would have blinked an eye because that's mm-hmm. just kind of where things were then. Yeah. What age the worst for you?
0: I have a duel, what age the worst, and we love this show, but it's Jay Lansman's ass crack.
2: Hey, McNulty, there's something here that needs kissing.
0: I don't, I cannot believe, I don't want to, like, look, dog, y'all got to relax. Shout out to, shout out to the actor who played Jay Lansman. His name escapes me right now. Delaney Um, Williams, I believe. Delaney Williams, Delaney Williams. Shout out to Delaney Williams. That's a lot of bravery. For you to show that ass, cause that was a that you know that was a crack, dog. That was like a <laughs> San Andreas fault. That was a crack. I'm not talking about the San Andreas fault, the actual San Andreas fault. I'm talking about the fault from the movie with The Rock, the fucking gigantic one. That you know what I'm saying? Like, and that's I, a lot I of remember, crack. That's a lot of crack, and that's a one of crack. those long backs. He don't have like a. It was like a tight end ass. It wasn't like a, a wide receiver ass. It was like a, you know, that was a lineman. That was a D lineman. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah that's a that's a Vince Wilfork special right there. I mean, so, I, this is gonna sound way more saucy than it
1: is, but I have seen unfortunately a lot of, a lot of the butt cracks of offensive linemen and of mm. unfortunately um, those in in uh, managerial positions in baseball because as a sports reporter you know we go in the locker rooms right mm-hmm. and people have this imagination that the locker room when a woman goes in there like it's a four poster four poster canopy bed and and wine and fucking genuine playing but like right, no no, no. Right. when you go in there shit is smelly right. Right. it's weird because it's like naked people just everywhere and you're like okay i just am trying to get a quote and finish my story and that's that almost inevitably, most of the superstar guys, like, you don't really see them naked, right? Because they they either wait till you leave to take a shower or they stay in some other area where you can't go and get dressed or clothed or clothed enough. But, man, offensive linemen, um, you know, third base coaches, first base coaches, managers, they glad to be
0: naked. It's just the everywhere. J- it's- the Jay Lansman types, like, the guys who are not the Stars but are, are integral, they don't give a, and they showed that ass. And I was like, wow, it's tough. It's tough to see. Shout out to him. That was brave of the actor, but could have gone without that. And that is age the worst. Now
1: is okay, that age the worst. I was like, is that your we love this show, but
0: <laughs> it's both. It's a duel. Both. It's, it's a, a dual. duel. Now it does fit. It, it does fit. Now as far as who uh, won the episode, for me it was Avon. And his ability to kind of to for his to have his character round out a little bit. Avon had the jewels in this episode. Avon some of the best acting Wood Harris man if y'all don't get off Y'all asses and give Wood Harris his motherfucking Flowers man some of the best Acting in the whole series from Wood Harris Uh, Avon to me if I'm Gonna come away with who won this episode I'm I'm gonna go with Avon Barstow
1: No that makes and it was so um, Tremendous what you said about How you know he has The wisdom that Stringer Bell doesn't have Um, And knows People just a little bit better he Understands their agendas and motivations A little bit better than than Stringer does. Stringer does to a point. Mm -hmm. But I picked Avon. We can uh, uh, totally agree. um, And it could just be for different reasons. I picked Avon as the winner of this this episode. Because the most impressive thing about him to me in this episode is Avon's self-aware. Like you said, he understands what he's involved with. What the costs are. And he's smart enough to know what he doesn't know. Avon, for he has certainly, uh, and people will see this later in the series. He certainly has had his reactions. He certainly has, um, maybe not necessarily thought things all the way through. Right. But, but that being said, though, um, he's a very deliberate person. Just overall, he's a very deliberate person, and his self awareness is part of the reason why he's so, you know, deliberate and understands things that Stringer, you know, frankly, doesn't. Right. And, um, and it's, and I also thought it's, it's kind of interesting for a guy that is in that position, that family. And I don't know if we ever got to the root of this in this whole series. It's like, why does family mean so much to him? We, we never really got to the root of that.
0: He's seen that family has kept them from being some of the other people out there in the low rises. And so, that probably means more to him than anything else.
1: Yeah. I mean, and and he shows uh, a level of allegiance to his family that sometimes they really don't deserve. I mean, to be honest, most of the times they don't, you know, right, yeah. and, and yet, and it's still important to him. And I thought because of this episode, we did finally see him on a more broader level than just, Oh, he's just the king. He's just the latest kingpin of this particular city. Um, he was a a very obvious winner of episode five. Um, The pager clearly not a winner was Jay Lansman's ass crack. So not a winner. Keep that shit. Hey, (laughs)
0: Hey, look,
1: I feel like, uh, you know, even though I knew it was a larger point there, just being subjected in the last episode to the idea of him and masturbation, man, that was too much. That was too much. So I, I feel you. Jay Jay Liz yes (laughs) no more ass crack and no more masturbation stories All right, that's gonna do it for us Um, make sure you join us for episode six which is called The Wire (laughs) that's it it's literally called what the entire series is called but it's called yes it's called The Wire Um, y'all be easy continue to watch The Wire and also continue to listen to us here on Way Down in the Hole take care